Hi, this is Bob Groves, and I welcome you all to our podcast series that we label Faculty and Research. And this week, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Toshiko Ichie, a Georgetown University professor and McGowan Chair in Chemistry. She, on the education side, teaches courses in statistical mechanics, physical chemistry, and computational methods for biomacromolecules in Georgetown College. I'm sure we'll talk a bit about that. Her research interests include physical chemistry, biophysics, extreme conditions, and computational chemistry. That research involves computational and theoretical studies of biological macromolecules and their aqueous environments at the molecular level. Her methods are a variety of computational tools, including simulations, electronic structure calculations, continuum dielectrics, and bioinformatics, as well as statistical mechanical theory. So she has a set of tools in her toolkit that are multifaceted. So Toshiko, I'm so happy that uh, we were able to persuade you to get out of the lab for a few minutes and talk to us. I'm delighted you found the time. And, and maybe we ought to begin with your thinking back on your first interests in the various fields that you find yourself passionate about. What was the spark that started this, if you recall? Bob, thank you for the very nice introduction. Actually, what I think got me into science in general was back when I was a little girl, I liked solving puzzles, every kind of puzzle. And it, you know, it could be either a jigsaw puzzle or whatever, but I just liked solving puzzles. And so that's one of the things that I find fascinating about science now is this sort of like playing a game where I'm trying to figure out the logic of how this puzzle works. I think another thing that I was kind of characteristic of me as a little girl, you know, heard from my mom, is I was very stubborn. And so I think that is something that has helped me be what I am now, is that if I run into problems, I just keep on chipping away. I just like worrying it until I figure it out. And so that's been an important characteristic for me. Also, I think for my particular area, I was influenced by classes I took in high school and Actually, in high school, my favorite subjects were maybe a bit nerdy. They were math and science. And I went on to college and have a bachelor's degree in physics from Rice University. And actually, I was intrigued when I went to college by the idea of applying physics to study biology. And so I actually took a lot of optional classes in biology. We didn't have minors there, but I just took them on my own. Yeah, so that's basically what I do is I apply physical methods to biology. This is fascinating. I didn't know how early you bridged fields. And do you remember this as something you saw this as a gap and you found merging those fields together as being something that you thought up? Or did you have a mentor at the time who said, boy, the future is in biophysics or what? Actually, my daddy mentioned it. <laughs> my dad was a geophysicist. And so he applied physics to geology. And he said, it's interesting to take the physical methods and apply them to a different area. And so I thought, well, I didn't want to be in the same area as my dad. So I said, oh, how about biophysics? And actually, Bob, when I was back home, uh, my parents' home, going through the attic, I found my, my college application. And it actually said, 
I want to apply physics to biology. That has to be near unique at the time. So your father was an academic. Yes. Uh, so you chose another part of your parents, and that is to apply this knowledge in an academic setting. So give me a sense of why you did that. You had other possibilities uh, for the knowledge you possessed in the private sector. How did you decide an academic career was for you? Actually, all, all my high school teachers and fellow students thought I was going to be an artist. But so one of the reasons I decided to go into science was actually, I could just see my dad enjoy what he was doing. I mean, my dad never took me for long walks and explained the rainbow to me or anything like that. He worked at home some of the time, you know, in the evenings, but he was just fascinated by it. I thought, well, Al, you know, it's kind of nice if you can do something that you think is fun. My dad was a professor and he'd come home and he was just always so excited about his work. He would work on it at night, um, even though he didn't have to. He just was so entranced by it. And I thought the idea of doing something where you think it's fun, it's like if I was a better skier, you know, it'd be fun to be a ski instructor. But, you know, where you're doing something that you think is a really fun thing to do, and that is what your nine to five job is. So you said two things uh, earlier that I want to probe a bit. You said you like to solve problems, even as a kid and you're stubborn. And if I think of scientists that I know and love, those are traits that are really needed. <laughs> There's one thing that I'm fascinated with on how you choose the problem to solve. There's an infinite number of problems to solve. And have you learned things over your career of what are the aspects of a problem that really has promise in choosing the problem to work on? How do you discern one that is worth spending your time on? And is your hit rate pretty low? You know, are you always uh, rejecting ideas that a few days earlier you thought were great? Okay, well, that's actually kind of hard. I tend to start from things I know, so things I was trained with. And I then I start looking at the problem. There's actually some amount of it is like to see if I'm interested in it, that's the main thing. But if other people are interested in it, that tells me that it's also maybe it's important. And so it does take communicating. And that's one thing in science that I didn't realize as a kid was that a lot of science today is about communication. You have to talk with other people and talk over your ideas and see if you can compel other people that your ideas are interesting and worthwhile. I think it's good to focus on a certain idea at a time so that you have time to think through, you know, if it's a puzzle, if it's a difficult puzzle, it pays to pay attention. But there's also just the reality of the situation. I have multiple students working for me and each one of them is asking me questions. And so I have to keep myself engaged. And it is actually, I think, good to have that. So you can't focus too deeply in one area because you need to always address your student. But that is also productive for me, I find, because sometimes if you focus too deeply, you can be banging your head on the wall. You're, you've convinced yourself this is the way to go. And then just by actually stepping away from it a little bit, you don't quite remember what you were thinking before. You start thinking about other things. And I write grant proposals. That's also another thing is it makes me look at things from a different perspective. And I think that looking at that can also actually stimulate your thinking. 
Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It sounds like you're also talking about your perceived value of a group, even if they're at different levels of sophistication on the problem can stimulate different synthesis of the things you're observing. I think, yes, definitely my group, but even teaching class, you know, I'll have students who will ask me a question and I'll think, hmm, and, and it will just like make me think of something, even some material I've seen and taught multiple times over the years, they will just ask me something that makes, stimulates me. And so I actually never really thought when I was in college that I would like teaching because actually I was terrified of getting in front of an audience. I was, I used, when I was a little girl, I used to cry. But actually now when I teach a class, I really enjoy interacting with the students. If I can explain something and somebody's face lights up, you know, it's a thrill. It's actually a really a thrill. Or I have had some students ask me interesting questions or give me interesting answers. And it is just wonderful. I remember in my own career where I was at the beginning worried that I didn't have the answer to every question. And then finally, I realized those are usually the best questions. And they're <laughs> a gift to us if we don't know the answer, you know, if it's beyond just a factual question and how valuable those can be in informing and enriching our own research programs in a way that the student might not realize at the time. But so it is a gift to us. I, think. I talked to a lot of junior professors who are beginning their lives as an academic and juggling the various things we have to do. Generally, there's no cookbook for this and everyone is a little different, but can you remember back on those days and what you'd like to tell the younger Toshiko at that moment that you now know, but you had to find out on your own? I would say the time, especially when I was going up for tenure, was uh, is a little bit of a haze for me because I had two babies during that time. And so I think I was in pregnancy, new mom fog for a lot of it. I'm not sure I would have advice, but just, you know, I realize a lot of new mothers and people get all this advice now. But I think in some ways, the lack of advice is just, you know, go for it. Sometimes we overthink the situation about how hard it's going to be. And if we just do it and figure out what ways work for us, there are different ways. I mean, obviously it's good to get suggestions, but you have to figure out your own way for your situation. So you are a woman scientist that unfortunately is still a rare breed, but I assume it was even more rare when you entered the field. And are things any better at all on that dimension with regard to treatment and access to research resources and, and so on? Honestly, I think they are a lot better. I mean, I was at this certain stage where, I mean, women scientists were not being discriminated, I guess, but it is kind of weird when you walk into a room and you're the only woman <laughs> there and there's some concerns, but I think I was pretty lucky uh, when I was an assistant professor. I got a lot of support from my colleagues and I am forever grateful to that. And I think obviously things will take time, but I feel like Georgetown does make a really good effort in trying to be supportive. But I see a lot of very positive things that have happened. So what are you real excited about right now in your research work? What do you find yourself thinking about at odd moments when you're not in the lab and you're just hanging out, but you're thinking? So the thing I'm most excited about now is trying to understand how organisms that live in extreme conditions can actually work. Because 
really at a molecular level, because if you look at the cells, you wouldn't really be able to tell the difference with like a cell from you or me. One of the things I'm interested in now are organisms that live under high pressure conditions. And these are things that live like at the bottom of the ocean. There are big things, fish, that amphipods that live at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. I mean, this is like about a thousand times atmospheric pressure. Now, if I stuck you in a thousand times <laughs> atmospheric pressure, you would be smushed. But these things actually can survive and they don't live in many submarines. So they have proteins that look like our proteins. They have DNA that looks like our DNA. Some of them have a little bit different cell membranes, but most of the molecules look the same. And what is it that allows them to keep on working under these extreme conditions? And some of them live at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which is very cold. It's about four degrees Celsius. Some of them live near a hydrothermal vent. I think the deepest that they've found things living is about 800 times atmospheric pressure. But they also they're in these hydrothermal vents. So they're at like over boiling point mm -hmm. and they can live under boiling point because it's under the ocean. And these things are happy as can be. They grow and live. And, uh, and there's some amazing animals that are able to survive. Well, there are microbes, stuff mm -hmm. like that. And I just want to figure out how they work uh -huh. in a more practical sense for life on earth is that there are techniques that people use. One thing is food preservation. So in order to preserve food, one technique is pasteurization. That's put things under high temperature. There's also a process which some people call pascalization, where you take food and you put it under high pressure. And it also sterilizes or kills the microbes in it. Actually, so if you've ever gotten guacamole from the grocery store and it's in the sealed container. So you used to get it guacamole at the grocery store, it only lasts a day. But this process is really good things like guacamole, uh, juices. But you also want to make sure that if you use this process, that you actually kill the microbes. So you want to understand how much pressure do you need? It's just like with uh, pasteurization, how high of a temperature do you need? And also you want to make sure that you don't develop uh, bacteria or microbes that are resistant. One of the things we're interested in is what are the mechanisms that these bacteria use to protect against these high temperatures and pressures? You want to make sure you can try and prevent developing resistance. Uh-huh. Got it. So if all went well and you discovered mm -hmm. these mechanisms, then on the example you're giving, we might preserve food over longer periods of time or different kinds of food stuffs could be preserved more fully and, and one can easily see how that would benefit the world. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. And actually this process of pascalization pressure one of the reasons people like it is because it preserves color. And so like if you pasteurize milk, you heat it up and changes the taste. But pasteurization preserves color, texture, all these other nice things about food, but also without chemicals. So this is mm -hmm. a, a way mm -hmm. to uh, treat food without using preservatives. What sort of discoveries have you had so far? And do you feel like you're close to something or are you at the beginning? Well, I think 
this whole field of looking at extreme conditions is huge. And I don't think I've discovered everything by far, but in my corner, I, I think I have discovered things that what are the kinds of adaptations that these extreme organisms have in their proteins? What makes them work? And so I think I can say what they're like. We've discovered that these high pressure adaptations for cold adapted organisms, things like at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, we think the ones that are near the hydrothermal vents, they're going to be totally different adaptations. Uh-huh. So that's where I'm excited about going to next is, you know, what are they doing, you know, taking what we've learned and how is it going to be the same and different when we go to the hydrothermal vents, like at high pressures and high temperatures? That's also kind of amazing. There are these things that live in water that's overboiling. This is fascinating. Well, just the last point in our conversation, my reflection on this conversation is that you as a teenager made a choice that you're still profiting from. This combination of knowledge of fields is you. I thank you so much for being with us today and wish you all the luck in your search for extreme conditions and why things survive. Thank you, Bob.